Hi, everyone. It's Steph. Thank you so much for tuning in and happy Wednesday. I just wanted to start off this episode with a little heads up about the cocktail of the episode, kind of like I did last episode. So this week, I decided to, like I've been talking about on my Instagram, drink pink for Valentine's Day, even though I know this is coming out on February 17th, I couldn't help but get in the spirit. And I do wholeheartedly believe things taste better when they're a pretty color. So I heard you and I watched you and I saw that vodka won all of these weird little polls that I was doing on the Instagram page. And so vodka drink it was. So what I made was called the pink strawberry muddle and it had basically three ingredients. It had vodka, strawberries, and Fitch and Leeds pink tonic, which is a rose and cucumber based tonic. It's a really, really nice tonic if you're doing just like plain gin and tonics, but it's also really awesome when you're using cool cocktails like this. So I go through the cocktail a little bit in the episode, and so I won't bore you with that here, but just so you know, if you're looking for a full written out recipe and some more photos of the cocktail, you can find them on my Instagram, which is at cocktails and contemplation, or you can go to the Fitch and Leads website, which is fitchandleads.com. You can also order tonic there if you want to make the cocktail at home. I so recommend it. It's really good, just plain. And it's also awesome in their different specialty tonics. They have a bunch on their website and it's just tasty as fuck. So that's fitchandleads.com or cocktails and contemplation. Otherwise, I won't keep you waiting. And here's the episode of the week. Does anyone else need a cocktail? I am on the inside like, oh my god. And you are, you are just an A-plus host. <laughs> I tell people. It was something like mother of alcohol, breaker of hearts. <laughs> I only drink hard alcohol when I have time to contemplate my entire existence, you know? Alright, so why don't we hop into it? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. It's um, Saturday's the first day of my reading week, so it's always nice. Yeah, a nice way to rest. Alright, so... Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Cocktails in Contemplation. Remember to always drink and contemplate responsibly. And (laughs) I'm Steph, the host, and I'm here today with a very new and exciting guest, Miss Erin Latimer. Do you want to introduce yourself, Erin? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. My name's Erin. I'm Stephanie's neighbor. Um, (laughs) That's my claim to fame. Uh, But I'm also a two-time Paralympic athlete in the sport of para-alpine skiing. So I competed in the Paralympics in 2014 and 2018. And then I retired and now I'm, yeah, Steph's neighbor in Collingwood. (laughs) I mean, she's always been my neighbor. That's how we know each other, actually. (laughs) But that's not news. Um, But so, yeah, Erin is... Uh, an incredible athlete. She went to, was it Sochi and Korea? Is that where you went? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Sochi was Russia and then Korea, it was Pyeongchang. Uh, So Erin, yeah, you went to two Paralympic games and, and skied for team Canada as I'm sure people Mm -hmm. may have. (laughs) You never know. Sometimes you have to spell it out. Oh, Erin's actually also verified on Instagram. So you can go follow her if you want. Uh, which is, is it at Aaron Latimer ski? Is that you? It's Aaron Latimer underscore ski. Sorry. Underscore ski. Yeah. That's where you can <laughs> find her on Instagram. Before we get into the interview full, full force, I'm going to talk quickly about the cocktail of the episode. 
So today is Valentine's Day, otherwise known as February 13th. So I made a cocktail that has to do with Valentine's Day because on Valentine's Day, it's always in your best interest to drink pink. Am I right? You actually had a drink, a pink drink too. Pink too. Yeah. (laughs) What are you drinking? I'm just rosé. I love it. Again, we are recording remotely because of the lockdown pandemic. Erin had to come up with her own cocktail. I was unable to make her one, but I did make one for my boyfriend, Devin. Devin, do you want to tell us how you find the cocktail? He's sitting next to me. (laughs) Come here. Mm, Yeah, I'm curious. He just downed it also. I looked over and he was just chugging it. So it's either really good or really bad. It's quite delightful. It's uh, got some hints of strawberry and it's not too sweet, which is good because uh, it's quite pink. So I was expecting it to be very sweet, but uh, yeah, it's great. So it's called, I actually, I fuck it up every time. It's called the pink strawberry muddle. (laughs) So (laughs) when he says hints of strawberry, it's actually basically entirely strawberry. (laughs) Um, So I blend Yeah, I know exactly. So it's a a recipe I found from a tonic called Fitch and Leeds Tonic, their site. They offer cocktail recipes and they have this really beautiful pink tonic called I think it's just called pink tonic, actually, which is a rose and cucumber flavored tonic. And it's really yummy. And I wanted to drink pink for Valentine's Day. So I made this. The only difference that I did, though, is I used vodka instead of gin. Mm, On the site, it says gin. But I had a lot of feedback on my Instagram this week. I was running a bunch of polls to see what people were wanting me to make some cocktails with. And between rum, whiskey, vodka and gin, vodka was the winner. So I decided I feel to like vodka is so easy. Vodka is pretty easy. I actually okay, I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but I don't really taste vodka ever. Which is Yeah, me- no, that's it's so true. <laughs> yeah, which is like maybe why I don't get drawn to it as much. Cause like I wanna if I'm having a nice cocktail, like I actually really enjoy like tasting the spirit in it, you know? Like that's mm, why I like gin okay. a lot. Cause I, I talked about that last time too, is like gin is super unique in everything that it does. So Dev, what what would you rate the cocktail? Six and a half. Out of seven? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. What would have made it better? What would have made it better? Gin, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make I'll I'll make a I'll do an Instagram story of Devin trying of gin. We'll we'll get the we'll get the content from him there. It's funny because it's called the pink strawberry muddle. But I didn't muddle the strawberries. I blended them. Basically, I blended the strawberries to make a strawberry puree, mixed that in a cocktail shaker with some vodka. I used Georgian Bay vodka and ice and then poured it over ice with a bunch of diced strawberries and then topped it with the pink tonic I was talking about before. You can find the recipe at fitchandleads.com under their cocktail recipes and I'm also going to be tagging them in my Instagram photos of the cocktail for this week so if you want to find it there it's cocktails and contemplation that's n not and because someone has that Instagram handle and if you want to DM them to give it to me that's fine but I kind of I'm kind of vibing the n these days see yeah I like it too thank you um so yeah I actually did something special this week in I made well I don't know if I should say this or not, but I made a video of me making the cocktail. Like I Ooh, filmed okay. myself. Like so, a tutorial or just like a follow like cam? A, like a like a tutorial kind of. Um, but I 
I've never done that before. So I don't know if I'm I, I my plan is to post it on Instagram. So yeah, hopefully there'll be a tutorial the day this episode comes out, which is February 17th. So keep an eye out for that. Also cocktails and contemplation. I actually really like it. I don't love strawberries, but I want it to be pink and I'm I'm really digging it. It's nice. It's not very sweet, which mm-hmm. is really nice because like I, I've said that before. Oh, that's um, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And how's your rosé? It's good. <laughs> well, I appreciate you drinking pink with me today. That's awesome. Of course. Yeah. Our colorways are matching. I know. That's always a good sign, isn't it? Okay. So why don't we start off this interview? So the Paralympics, was this something that you always planned on? Great question, Stephanie. I think Thank that's you. a perfect place to start. <laughs> um, so I was, I used to say I was born with a congenital arm amputation, but now I've started hearing the new lingo is limb difference. And I think that better like describes it. So mm-hmm. I have a limb difference. And so when I started, um, you know, I started skiing because everyone in my family did. And for those of you who know about skiing, when you start skiing, you only like you don't use poles. But uh, yeah, started ski racing. And at that point, I had um, like a prosthetic that allowed me to hold two poles, loved my skiing, loved my ski racing, um, like any kind of, you know, sport that we do for fun. And then I hadn't even ever thought about the Paralympics. I didn't even know that, you know, this sounds so silly, but I didn't even know that para-alpine was a sport in the Paralympics. And so I was just going along my merry way until someone from the um, Ontario para race team was kind of looking for athletes in the ski community in Ontario who had physical impairments. And so obviously, you know, our head coach was like, hey, (laughs) I know somebody. And I was so so hesitant to begin with to get involved with para sport because the the level like the para skiers that I had seen were really um, adaptive skiers meaning like they kind of were learning to ski as something that was more you know as like a rehab or like a fun activity and I was someone who had grown up skiing I started skiing when I was two and a half so I was kind of like yeah, like maybe not for me. Um, and then I also feel like I had this kind of underlying, uh, and I don't think I realized it until later, this like kind of like unconscious bias of what Paralympic sport was. And it almost felt like it was something that you would only do if you couldn't do able-bodied sport. And I was like, I am doing able-bodied sport. I got my friends that I grew up skiing with and ski racing with. So um, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and my parents were like, you have to at least try it. And like, and when I say try it, there was going to be the Ontario para winter game. So it was going to be one race, um, in Huntsville. And I was like, no. And they were like, yes. So I was like, oh, fine. <laughs> and of course I went and I had a great time as we always do, <laughs> we're like, you know, put in these situations. And there were, there were a couple other people, mostly around my age. And I, I was, and then if, if some people a bit older, and I would say like, they weren't necessarily like not to be rude, like they weren't necessarily like spectacular ski racers because, you know, the people who are identified as um, high performance para Paralympic or para alpine skiers are on the national team. And, and once you're on the national team, you aren't, you aren't engaging in kind of um, that lower, you know, provincial. So, but regardless, I had a good time, but I was, um, you know, flagged and invited to a prospect camp with the national team. And so that's the Canadian para alpine ski team. And it was going to be in Banff, Alberta. And I was like, oh, okay. Like sign me up. <laughs> like, I feel like any time that you 
Yeah, right. Um, I was like 15, 14, 15. I don't know. And they were, I was like, yeah, sure. So at that camp, there were a couple of other prospects. I think there were like, I don't know, maybe four or five. And there were a few members of the Canadian Paralpine team who were just a few years older than me. And that's kind of when I was like, oh, okay, I'm into this. Also, I saw the elite level of competition that there was on the national team the the Paralympics were going to be two years away. And, um, and so I was like, okay, like I'm going to, you know, show up as much as they keep inviting me around and try. And so I went to the, I, there was, you know, there are different amounts of slots that you can, you can get into to go to the Paralympics. And so it wasn't like confirmed that I was going to be going until, um, you know, a few weeks before. So then I went to the Paralympics and it was so amazing and so cool. And then from there I was like okay I want to dedicate you know a full because the cycles are four years typically there's a four-year cycle and so I thought oh my gosh um like imagine what I what the experience might be like if I put four years um towards preparing for this because you know up until two years before I went to the Paralympics I quite frankly didn't even know that Paralympics had skiing in them that's uh it in a nutshell, I guess, <laughs> but a dragged yeah. out nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, so you were basically scouted to join this team, right? Yes. Yeah. And so I was scouted first just to be like, you know, P- para Alpine Ontario. And then from there, um, I was, you know, pulled to, to be a prospect for the national team. So was that because of your ability as a ski racer that they said, yeah, bring her to the nationals. Like they saw your talent. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I think if you really think about it across Canada, the amount of people that ski race already is not very big. And then if you think about the amount of ski racers who have a physical disability, it's even Mm. lower. And so it's not that um, and I don't mean to say that it's not competitive because it definitely is, but it's it's not as it's not as common to see a young athlete who has grown up skiing in the able bodied system and then be able to kind of like pull them. And again, like it took a lot, it took two years of me being a prospect before I made the national team. Um, because there is also a big gap of like, what does it mean to, to travel and train on a national team? There's a big gap and a lot of learning for the athleticism to actually be your career or job, your full-time activity. Mm -hmm. Right. But it is, it's like you said though. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's just a smaller demographic, like what you're Mm -hmm. coming from as a para-athlete. Is that the correct term? Para-athlete? Yeah, I would say, yeah. Okay. Um, Can you just quickly, obviously I'm very aware of what makes you a para-athlete, but can you Mm -hmm. let people know exactly what it is that you have or that Mm -hmm. sets you apart in that regard? Your right arm, right? Yeah, my right arm below the elbow. So yeah, so I wear a prosthetic arm. So, um, you know, for the most part, I think if you like pass me on the street, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell. Yeah. but if you see me like on the ski hill or like walking, you would be able to tell probably like on the ski hill, obviously you use one pole and then like walking, you'd be like, I, you don't know how many times I get like, oh, you like dropped your mitten. And I'm like, nope, it's a prosthetic. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay. So it looks pretty real. <laughs> it honestly yeah. does. It honestly does. Obviously I've known Aaron for my whole life, basically. Like I don't even think about it like yeah for you ever me neither. <laughs> like even even like yeah. thinking, like it makes total sense to me when you were like oh you guys want me on the Paralympic team like you said because exactly like you were talking about like you are a fully able-bodied athlete like 
There is nothing mm-hmm. that's ever set you apart in that regard. That being said, it's incredible that you were able to utilize that to your advantage and be able to have those mm-hmm. experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, like whenever I, you know, I'm in places where I speak about disability, especially on International Persons with Disability Day, because, <laughs> you know, everyone wants a piece of someone with a disability. I, I've like done a lot of, <laughs> I've done like a lot of reflection about this. And I think it is something that it's, it's kind of cast as something that we think is something that's you know negative or tragic and that's that a lot of it has to do with media representation yeah but in in doing so i'm like you know what like my phys- I, I mean i don't say disability i say impairment <laughs> but okay. my physical impairment is like actually maybe the the best thing that happened to me because without it i would have like not been able to to go to the Paralympics and skiing, not being able to make a career out of Paralpine. And then like the opportunities that it's led to now have been um, p- been pretty great. And so I feel like fortunate about that, which is yeah. kind of like, you know, ironic if you're, you know, if you're looking at these kind of narratives and discourses about it. Mm-hmm. You're someone who is a really passionate person and I've seen you be really passionate in athletics, particularly skiing. I mean, obviously because of the Paralympics, it probably became more in the forefront of your life, but you played Mm -hmm. other sports through high school and stuff, didn't you? Like, yeah. Like I always just did all like an array of things. I, um, I don't know. I I don't want to say, I almost said like the normal kids sports, but I I don't, I'm trying to get away from like those discourses of like, what's normal, what's not normal. But yeah, I grew up, I did like you know, um, dance and gymnastics. And then I, I, I really liked soccer. I played rep soccer for a couple of years. Um, I did track cross country. Um, yeah, all of those things, but then, you know, skiing was always my main sport. And then once I got to a certain uh, level with skiing, the other sports had to, to fall away just because it's so time consuming. Yeah, absolutely. And skiing is also a lot of travel most of the time because it's mm-hmm. so winter. Yeah. You can't just yeah, kick a soccer ball around a field like skiing. It's like yes, and- that's what I try to explain to people because I'm in a lot of like, um, I guess like national team and like retired national team athlete communities. And like, of course, every sport has their own thing, but some people just, especially a lot of um, like summer athletes, like don't necessarily get it because they're like, oh, well, I did like three degrees and had a full-time job while I was doing my sport. And I'm like, yes, but you also are able to wake up you know, a couple hours earlier before your day and train at your sport and then go to your day job or your day activity, mm-hmm. or you ask your, you know, you know, company or whatever for a couple of weeks off for your competition. And, and so it is like a more balanced life that, yeah. that you're, you're living and skiing is, is not that way. And a lot of snow sports aren't. And I think that's, that's what makes it kind of, I would, in my opinion, difficult. It makes it not very sustainable. Something that's really important to note about skiing or other winter sports is that you almost entirely do training outside and you don't have as much daylight in the winter. Like you can't ski at night. It's Mm -hmm. really unlikely that people have the facilities to accommodate night skiing in a safe way. And so you're basically like eight to four o'clock for most of your training season. And then that's all you get for that day. Yeah. I can speak a little bit about what our training schedule looked like, because I think it's hard to picture, but uh, like the season would start in May and we would do our first camp on snow in Banff. And so that'd be like, you know, two, three weeks, then you'd go home for a couple of weeks. We centralized in Whistler in the summer from, I guess, like 
May, end of May, beginning of June until September. So we were in, just in the gym, no skiing. In September, we would go to Chile um, because it's winter there when it's our summer. And we would do a three week camp. Then you'd usually get a couple weeks at home, go back to Whistler. And then from October to December, we did preseason training either in Europe on glaciers or um, in Colorado or um, Panorama BC. And then from December until I guess like end of February, March is the World Cup season. So it depends where it is, but often it's like in Europe. And so you're kind of going back and forth. Um, and then in, in March, it's usually kind of the final, whatever, whether it, it's the Paralympics or the world champs or world cup finals. And then in, at the end of March, beginning of April is national somewhere in Canada. And then it's like, you get three weeks off and then you do it all again. Do you have a favorite place that you would go to train? It's hard to compare because like each place was just so different for so many, so many reasons. Um, but I always really liked, we did a trip around Christmas um, to St. Moritz. And that one was really nice because it was like always so sunny and it feels so uh, just like really magical there. It's so pretty, lots of snow. It's around Christmas time. Everywhere in Europe, like I swear, even if it's like the tiniest hotel, it they have like a spa in the basement or on the rooftop. It's great. That is so good to know. I've never been yeah. to a European spa hotel. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like all like, you know, you don't have to pay, you just go. And it's, so it's like, you know, saunas, steam rooms, like they often feed you too, which is nice. In the spa? No, sorry. Like at the hotel. <laughs> I was going to be like, imagine <laughs> just in a hot tub, but- cucumbers on your eyes. And you're like, I'll have the steak. Yeah. Actually, a lot of the spas though did have snacks. They had like dried fruit and like infused water. Yeah. And these weren't even necessarily like fancy places. It was just, you know, that was what they did. That's so fun. I had actually a a question because you had a a kind of a quick turnaround going into your first Olympics, which was 2014 Mm -hmm. in Russia. Did you get any really valuable advice in the training leading up to your first Paralympics? No, <laughs> I, I honestly like it. It's insane, and I think I've I've done I've realized this in different areas of my life too. But I always like don't know how much I don't know. I'm so surprised by how many different areas I go into in my life where, after I've like you know been there or am a few years seasoned, I'm like, why didn't anybody tell me this? Like I know you don't expect like a training manual to go into things, but there are some things where in my eyes it's so obvious to kind of you know set someone else up to like know what to expect or but no so no no advice I would say um I mean maybe there was advice that I got but like obviously nothing that stuck around because I am drawing up a blank do you have any advice that you would share to people going a similar route yeah for sure I think I always um give people too much advice because I'm like because I find that different things stick for different people. So if I have an experience and I feel like I can help, um, I always tell people like, you know, take, take what, what you need and like leave what you don't need about my advice. But I try and like give them almost like information, paint them my whole experience so that they're able to, you know, really be informed and be able to select that. But I think just in general, it would just be to, um, although it feels like it's so, such a different, you know, scale and can be so intimidating knowing that you're competing at the Paralympics or the Olympics, whatever. At the end of the day, it is really just another race. The competitors that you're against are the same people. You know, it's the same kind of the same thing that you've been doing, um, the same way that you're racing. And so when you kind of think about it like that, it makes things a lot um 
less intimidating for sure. And then I think the other big thing is to just like really appreciate your time. And also I think trust yourself and bring, bring yourself and like flexibility and your intuition and all of those things to your experience because they put a lot of pressure like on, you know, are you doing this? Are you doing that? At the end of the day, like that doesn't always work for everybody, but it takes away like what makes you you. It can get really, it can be really easy to get kind of caught up in all of those processes and like trusting the system and whatever. But I think whatever we do, we have to like continue to bring ourselves to the experience. For sure. Like there's never a point where you should ever sacrifice the passion. The word passion can be like, I would say intimidating because a lot of people don't have a passion. And, and while I did love skiing and ski racing and I still love it, I don't know if I would say like, it's my passion. That being said, yeah. I think anyone who knows me know I, knows that I love skiing. And when I am skiing, especially when I'm skiing at West, like I am so in my flow, but I'm also not the person that's like, all right, I'm going to, you know, move out West and I'm going to, you know, ski every day of my life from lift open to lift close. But, and I don't think that means that I like skiing less than the next person. It's just, I, I don't want to say like manifests differently, but in a sense. Yeah, no, totally. I completely understand what you're trying to say. There's times where I question my own passion in music because I see people who never put down their instrument, whereas I'm like happy to be multifaceted and have other things that keep me preoccupied. But I always come back to music because that's like so in the front forefront of my life. Yeah. And even just bouncing off of that point, I find that it's something that's so counterintuitive, but anywhere in our lives, we are, you know, told like more is better especially with the sports like alpine skiing, they don't want you to have distractions. And so everything is centered around your training and your racing and your schedule. And so you're not doing school, you're not working. Anything that could, you know, get in, get in the way of your training, um, you lose. And at the time it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But it's very, like, it's actually not true <laughs> because you're going to burn out. Um, you're not going to have these other things that keep you fresh. And let's say one day, I'm really like, I see a mark for school and I'm not the happiest with it. Two seconds later, I've already forgotten because I'm excited about something that I'm doing for work. Then it allows me to like get out of my head and feel good about whatever else I'm doing because whatever we're doing, we always tie it to our self-worth. And so if there's just this one thing, that's this one really big thing in our life, when it's going great, amazing, because you're just like on fire. But when it's not, it's just kind of paralyzing and you feel like you're just stuck. And so I think that can be really difficult, especially for athletes when they retire, because it's like, well, now who am I? What am I? And they don't know. No, that's that is a really important thing to actually touch on about the importance of being multifaceted people get put in boxes especially those who do it with an audience so like um pro athletes or musicians or actors like people decide what they are based on what they see and then now it's like oh wait she doesn't sing she acts you know what I mean like for athleticism like it's so easy you can be passionate about like psychology and still be like a professional hockey player and still want to make a degree in psychology or something on top of being a hockey player. Like those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yes. Yeah. And I think the other thing is we all work in our own ways. So my passion for something's going to look different from someone else's. And I always like to say like work smarter, not harder because I'm out of sport and into like the, I guess, Western education slash 
corporate culture. It's almost like busyness and exhaustion is this status symbol. And it's like a sign that you're like important. That's actually not necessarily the case. I'm the type I can't sit down and work straight throughout the day. Like I need, I time chunk, I go for a hike. I like, um, you know, go for a walk with a friend. I, I can't sit down and just work because I'm not going to be producing, you know, good quality work. I, I'm able to build my own schedule, but in doing so, I'm also able to realize like, hey, I'm able to produce quality work that I'm proud of. And that was also efficient time-wise when I'm able to work in ways that work for me and the ways that work for me are going to look different from someone else. But just because I'm not sitting at my desk from nine to five doesn't mean that like I'm working any less than the person sitting next to me. Absolutely. That is something that I noticed immediately after I started working in Toronto. It's insane how toxic the work culture can be when the expectation is to burn out like it's actually fucked and so many of my friends especially friends in like consulting in the financial market like anything like that like the expectation is for them to be accessible all hours of the day like basically at the work's beck and call or they're not working hard enough and it's always this like excuse well like oh like once I like put in the work like your life is now and we're not guaranteed whatever situation that we're looking forward to in the future and unfortunately we kind of become numb to the the ways that we are being so if you're like a workaholic and are are prescribing to those patterns then guess what as soon as you stop running you're going to be really uncomfortable because you're not going to know what to do with leisure or free time. And you're going to feel <laughs> like, so yes, yeah, so like even people who are like, oh, well, I like to work. I'm like, yeah, me too. But I, that doesn't mean we should do it all the time. It's, it's all about being able to balance things that empower you, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then like, we could get really deep into that, but I don't think we should. Cause I don't even know like where it ends, but <laughs> me either. It's, it's a bottomless void. <laughs> And it's interesting because I think we so often, um, you know, look to analyze everything and get to the bottom of these things. And sometimes it's just simply like being like, hey, I like this. That's a really important thing to recognize in yourself. It's like what sparks joy, even if it's just a little bit, you know, moving forward a little bit. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your actual experience at the Olympics uh, mm-hmm. So like we said, you went to Sochi in Russia and then yeah. Young Chang in South Korea. Do you have one that you enjoyed more than the other? Like, do you have a favorite experience? Mm, yeah, again, they were just so different. So I really can't compare them. I, I would say like what's most memorable, um, 2018, because I was older and also I just knew I had done so much well, maturing, but also personal reflection. I also knew that was going to be my last Paralympics. So the way that I approached it, but also the amount of time that went into it, right? Like the first time that I went to the Paralympics was in 2014. And I I had like gotten confirmation like a few weeks before I'd be going and hadn't even started para-alpine until two years before my very first race. Hadn't put that much time into like the actual, um, you know, program with the national team. So coming into 2018, it was like, okay, I've been on the national team for four years. I've been a prospect for two years before that I've put a lot into this. And so naturally it, it kind of like, I guess, meant a lot more. The second time I, I had nine people come wow. like family, friends and my family. Yeah. So that was special. All the way to South like, Korea. That's just, incredible. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it was great. Um, and yeah. And then I was just like, you know, able to recognize like just how cool it was, but also I had over the years kind of built with, I guess I was just like more involved with the Canadian Paralympic committee had, had a bigger pickup, not that there's like huge media, but like had bigger opportunities for um, these kind of like campaigns and engagement pieces. And so that always makes things more exciting because you're kind of just like involved more in, in something and, and it means more and you have like more people following along, but they were both really, really special and really different experiences. So when you went to Sochi, did you have any big takeaways from that experience right off the bat because it was such a quick turnaround takeaways oh I guess that I had a lot to learn but I didn't realize until like years down the line I was like oh my god good thing I didn't know how clueless I was back then because otherwise I would have just been probably really intimidated and embarrassed (laughs) at being such a noob (laughs) I get that (laughs) you you can't always wait until you're like perfectly prepared you just gotta show up because the, the experience of that, like, then when I went into 2018 Paralympics, I was like, okay, I kind of like, I know it's going to be different, but I also have an expectation of the things that I can expect or anticipate. What kind of happens the day that you're actually, you're, you're doing your races? The key of everything is that we prepare like it's just another race because consistency and knowing your plan and, you know, having that routine is essential for allowing you to perform to the best of your ability. Cause it's like, by the time, like you're getting to the Paralympics, like you want to have everything consistent because anything that you change is a distraction. And, and it's because every time we have to make decisions in our days, that takes away a lot of energy when you're an athlete. And especially on a race day, that energy needs to be going towards the performance. Although that's the one, that's the one big thing that at the Paralympics, it's different. You have this like huge, um, like food hall and literally like, it's just imagine like the biggest cafeteria and like so many different options. And that's, that sewers a lot of athletes because they're like, oh, I'm going to have this today. And then it doesn't like sit right with them because because that's not something they're used to eating. Right. (laughs) Oh God. Imagine you get the shits on the day of your biggest race. (laughs) shouldn't have had that mac and cheese in the dining hall sometimes yeah okay I have a saucy question for you okay I went to university and in university there's this thing that most people are familiar with which is called residence and it's a little notorious for people living in the same building kind of start smooching each other and, you know, having sleepovers okay. in other people's rooms. And I've heard a rumor that the athlete's village has a few <laughs> similarities to residents. This is a long you know way of, of asking if I, there's... I know where it's going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get scandalous the- in the athlete's village, Aaron? I didn't. And nobody like nobody did when I was there. And I was like, really? I want the I want some tea around here. <laughs> like, um, no, because and it's funny that you say that because that's like I feel like people either ask like questions there, I get like a few questions that people always ask. And mostly they're like, Oh, what an amazing experience. What was your favorite? What is your best memory? And then, you know, others the other one extreme would be like, Oh, like, so I heard that everyone sleeps around. Like, is that true? <laughs> and in my experience, it was not. And obviously I'm not like, you know, having these conversations with every 
uh, Olympic athlete that I meet. I don't know if you think about it this way. Um, usually like you're so focused on, you know, rest and training and all of that, that like, you don't have time to like, be like looking around for these kind of escapades. The other thing that's different, I don't know, like it, it could be different for other athletes, but, but like maybe on the last night. Yeah. Thank you for all that wonderful insight into the Olympics and your journey. Oh, of course. Well, sorry. I'll just correct. It was the Paralympics. Sorry. Sorry. There's, there's different tea for the Olympics. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I would love to do my closing segment with you if you're up for it. Oh, of course. Oh, wait. I always forget to ask this. Do you have a weird fact about yourself? Um, so I was trying to think about this and I feel like there are so many different angles that I could go. I mean, one of the weird facts obviously is like I have um, a limb difference. which <laughs> is <just> pretty weird. <laughs> I feel like it's more weird for people who like don't know me because they'll be like past me on the street and they'll be like, oh, like you, you don't, oh, you dropped your mitten or like if I'm cross-country skiing, yeah. it's like, oh, you only have one pole. I'm like, yep. And people are like, oh, because sometimes people don't notice. I mean, I feel like it's not a surprise here uh, because we talked about it already. So yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Okay. So moving on the final segment of cocktails and contemplation is called wed bed behead. Okay. If you have heard listened- of this one before. Oh, yeah. yeah this is what I'm wondering though is like I maybe this is another fact that surprises people or that's weird about me is like I actually don't know a lot of like popular media references so if you're choosing people in this selection there could be a chance that I don't even know them well I can just do our friends if you want if that oh my gosh it. no <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh can you imagine? Cringe. That'd be so funny. Okay. Well, yeah. I thought I would do, oh, I, I thought I would do a themed one for you to start. The theme okay. is Canadian Olympians. Ooh. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to go Sidney Crosby, Adam okay. Vancouverton. Done. Okay. And Michael <laughs> Kingsbury. Oh, okay. Do you know, um, you know who all the athletes are? Yes, I do. Like, I I'm don't just, know them per- that's that's okay um well which i think is for the best for everyone who doesn't know that's okay um sydney crosby is obviously a hockey player he uh michael kingsbury is a canadian freestyle skier and adam vancouverton is kayaking i'm looking yeah yeah okay Okay. i know i already know mine Okay, I do. Do you go first or do I go first? You go first. Well, it doesn't really matter. Okay, so I feel like I would, oh, I would bed. Oh, maybe Sydney Crosby, just to say that I did. So fair. Maybe I would wed Adam, not simp- not necessarily because of like who he is, but I know that he's working. I think with the Green Party right now, and he did like an undergrad in environmental studies, and so I feel like he's doing really important yeah. work with his like status and That's unfortunately really- I guess that goes um sorry Michael, Michael. <laughs> it, me- Michael. I, it might even be Michelle Michelle, Michelle I don't Michelle. know because he's from Quebec I don't know I always yeah. say Michael it's not personal Michael. he's he's cute though so honestly Love I have a huge lips. crush on him <laughs> like okay Devin's do you like people there. from Quebec Devin's up there. He's probably gonna be like, "Who the fuck are you talking about?" Um, no, I love freestyle skiers. <laughs> mm, I've yeah. my favorite sport is 
ski cross, snowboard cross. And mm-hmm. I also love the moguls too because I'm all like the flips and shit. Like so sick. Yeah, they're but, so like, cool. They're so they make it look so easy. Yeah, like I love those sports. Like you can ask my family. I don't know why. It's always just like been I think because they're just like so fast paced. And like what I find about sports in particular that is hard is like I get bored if it's not fast paced. Like I find there's like baseball is mm-hmm. so slow, so strategy. Like that doesn't work for me. Like like there's just so many breaks in, in especially team sports and, and national sports. So like, but like ski cross mm-hmm. and snowboard cross, I'm like, yes. Um, so I think uh, I'm so, I'm definitely killing Sidney Crosby though. He's dead for sure. Mm. <laughs> I, I, Dang. I know <laughs> he's, he's a beautiful jawline, but I, I, no, thank you. <laughs> um, I think I'm conflicted now. I would probably marry Kingsbury I'd probably marry Mm -hmm. him and I would probably smooch Adam also I but that (laughs) that being said that being said marrying Adam would be awesome because he's the best last name ever Vancouverton like that's such a cool last name it is cool yeah I would love that Stephanie Vancouverton Mm -hmm. that's a good good but you could also still just like marry whoever you want and then change your last name to Vancouverton it's 2020 (laughs) I could. <laughs> you are so right. It's a sweet last name. Okay. What about Harry, Ron, Draco? <laughs> you get that oh one? Oh my God. I love it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, ooh, hmm. interesting. I guess I would marry Harry. I guess I would. Oh, actually, that's hard. I was going to kill draco but then i was like oh maybe i'd rather not no he needs to die he's toxic um and i guess that leaves uh, ron to to bed good choice honestly tom felton is like the most precious person in real life like yeah. i love him but we're not doing that like it's not tom no. and daniel no. and and no, no. Rupert. it's not it's <laughs> um i probably marry ron he's a family man okay which is odd because that's true, yeah. Because and he's chill. Yeah, it's true. But in, he wouldn't in, be in- intimidated by your confidence. No, he wouldn't. He would I let you shine. Like he would, and he would also like appreciate it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and true. and I would appreciate him right back. Also, like I love it when people are goofy because it like that's like my favorite thing about people is when everyone can mm-hmm. be goofballs. I have to say, I think based on Draco's sadistic nature he'd be excellent in the sack. So I know I'm gonna, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and um, bed him. And I'm unfortunately going to behead the chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm killing Harry Potter. Well, yeah. I mean, somebody had to. Yeah, it's, it's unfair. There's no chance like in, you know, how did he keep surviving all these situations? Honestly, well, I don't know He's why Voldemort didn't just get a gun like at that point. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, seriously. spells clearly uh, aren't working. Mm-hmm. We should write like an alternate first book. <laughs> and then like the series just like never happened because Harry died in chapter one. <laughs> they just <laughs> stepped on the baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh god we're we're so bad oh thankfully it did and that our childhoods were richer because of it so Aaron, is there anything that you'd like to add for audiences 
Mm, I think I just like to say always, and it's like, it's not like a fancy wording or anything. I just think like everyone, I think so often, you know, you hear about people's stories and maybe you think they're interesting. Maybe you don't. Um, and it's easy to think like, oh, wow, this person is doing something really interesting. And like, I haven't done anything or this person's passionate about this. I'm not passionate about anything. The fact of the matter is everybody is interesting in their own ways. And it's not necessarily like marked by this, like, you know, goalpost accomplishment. You just like appreciate and own being who you are, because that is as corny as it sounds like that's your strength. And I think anytime we look to some someone else and try to achieve something they've achieved or try and pick the qualities that we think um, make would make us like them or that people like about them, it's not going to- It's not beneficial. Exactly. And it's like, yeah. once you kind of give yourself permission, as corny as it sounds, just treat yourself with compassion and appreciate you because you are doing your best. All right. Love it. Thank you so much, Erin, for coming on the podcast. If you guys are interested in checking her out at Erin Latimer underscore ski. And also, if you're interested in trying the pink strawberry model, that's what it's called. The Valentine's Day cocktail. I'll be posting a tutorial video, I hope. And the recipe you can find at fitchandleads.com and I'll post photos of it. I got some really fun Valentine's Day pictures coming at you guys soon. Otherwise, happy Valentine's Day, Erin. And thank you so much for tuning in and joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. I had so much fun and hopefully Mm -hmm. um, we'll be able to have some conversations in person soon and you'll be able to make me a cocktail IRL. All right. Until next time, everyone, remember to always drink and contemplate responsibly. There is no need to lie to me, you guys. I know it's true. We all got COVID dogs this year. I got a COVID dog. Her name is Shelby, and she's a beautiful French bulldog. You have likely seen her featured on my Instagram, and she's actually made a few appearances in these podcasts. And if you're like me, and you want the best for your dog, and you want to spoil your perfect little angel, Forest Bandana makes beautiful, stylish, high-quality, and sustainable options and accessories for your dogs. They have leashes, they have collars, they have, of course, bandanas. Forest Bandana is 100% committed to making quality and durable products that will last forever for your dog. And they're also a very eco-friendly shop. They source all of their materials for like products and packaging with as limited environmental impact as possible. If you're looking for something for your dog and you want to spoil them the way I'm sure you do, check out borisbandana.com and you can use the code CNC15 for 15% off any purchase that you make. Or you can find them on Instagram to see all of their products and the beautiful doggies they feature, which is at borisbandana. And again, that's CNC15 at borisbandana.com for 15% off any purchase.